Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. If you'd like to see an extensive gallery of Eve Grey pictures, become a supporter of Forgotten Australia. It costs about the same as a cup of coffee a month, and by becoming a supporter, you'll be helping me research these episodes. To support, go to patreon.com forward slash Forgotten Australia, and this link's in your show notes. It's an early winter's evening in London, 1926, and Eve Grey is shooting her feature film debut. Australia, her home of a dozen years, is behind her, and she's recently made her name in England as a talented stage beauty. Now, the silver screen beckons. Eve's playing in a thriller inspired by Jack the Ripper. Her role? A blonde chorus girl, not unlike the real life she was living in Sydney at the start of the decade. Eve is only making a small appearance in this film. Even so, the young director is orchestrating it carefully. In her scene, Eve's to walk the streets with her boyfriend, have an argument, stamp her foot and stalk off. Then, in a cobblestone alley, she's to stop, bend down and adjust her shoe. As a shadow falls over Eve, she's to look up and scream though no one will hear this because the pictures are still silent. The camera will come in close on her horrified face, framed by her golden curls poking from beneath her hat. The camera's cranked, the director calls for action, and Eve plays the part of this murder victim. The director nails the shot. When this film, titled The Lodger, is released in 1927, it'll be a smash hit, and forever after be regarded as the film that set this director's style. In her movie debut, Eve Grey, once Australia's most beautiful girl, has become Alfred Hitchcock's first featured blonde murder victim. I'm Michael Adams, and this is the second and final part of the Forgotten Australia episode, More Than Australia's Most Beautiful Girl. In Australia, 100 years ago this month, June 1922, Eve Grey was still grappling with the dark side of her overnight fame. Having won the Evening News' beauty competition, she'd been swamped with unwanted attention from the public, and her stage performances had been judged in terms of her looks rather than her ability. Everywhere she went, and everything she did, Eve was viewed through the lens of Australia's Most Beautiful Girl. Fulfilling her promise after the competition, Eve sat for the artist John Longstaff, who'd been one of the judges, with her portrait exhibited at a major exhibition of Australian art in Sydney and then in Melbourne. In the painting, Eve's swathed in fur, so that all we see are her neck and face, with those golden curls tamed by a red turban that's adorned with decorative fruit. But it's Eve's steady gaze and the faintest of smiles that arrest the viewer. Her look is almost thrown together, and there's an appealing immediacy about the image. 
Artistic merit, however, ran secondary for many in 1922. For instance, Lismore's Northern Star reported, quote, For many reasons, the most talked about picture in the exhibition is Longstaff's Portrait of Eve Grey. Well, to be quite frank, the painter doesn't do her justice. She's much prettier than that. Eve was next cast in Oscar Ashe's massive stage melodrama Cairo. Though not well remembered today, a century ago, actor, writer, director, producer Oscar Ashe was one of the most famous Australians alive. His spectacular Chu Chin Chow had premiered at Her Majesty's Theatre in London in August 1916 and clocked up more than 2,300 performances in a record-breaking five-year run. Cairo had been Oscar Ashe's big follow-up and now he was bringing it to the Sydney stage. The Sunday Times gives us an idea of what audiences saw amid sets of crumbling Egyptian palaces. Quote, Gleaming flesh of women, shed blood of men, lusts and appetites, love and revenge, clamorous passions, painted in leaping colours and set in a splendid frame. Writer-director-producer Oscar Ashe was again the star. Eve Grey was to play a harem girl, and she didn't have any dialogue. Like wax fruit hanging from her turban in that picture, her role was merely decorative. She was called on to pose on a staircase. Nevertheless, the Sunday Times reviewed her beauty favorably in its favorable review of Cairo, which it called, quote, the most magnificent stage production in Australian dramatic history. As a freshly minted celebrity, Eve lent her name, face and fame to various charitable endeavors. We get an idea of the scrutiny she faced from one such event, in November 1922, when Eve fronted an auction in aid of ex-servicemen ahead of Armistice Day. The item up for sale was a historic menu card signed by the Prince of Wales, but the crowd appeared to have turned out to see Eve. As the Evening News reported, quote, This was particularly true of the concentrated feminine gaze, which never left the actress's countenance all the time she appealed for bids. A fortnight later, theatrical impresario Sir Benjamin Fuller announced that he had bigger plans for Eve than simply using her as a decoration. While Oscar Ashe and his Cairo company would go to Melbourne, Eve would remain in Sydney to star in the big Christmas pantomime Mother Goose. This was to play at Sydney's vast Hippodrome, which later became the Capitol Theatre. Eve wasn't going to be an extra, but the principal girl, playing the good fairy Silverbell. Of course, cashing in on the competition, she was billed as, quote, Australia's most beautiful principal girl. Eve was to star opposite actress Amy Rochelle, then well-established as Australia's most beloved principal boy in pantomimes. The Evening News took credit for Eve's promotion. Quote, Not long ago, Miss Eve Grey was a quiet, little, unnoticed girl, lost in the shadows of the theatre. Then, the paper said, the beauty competition had rescued her. Quote, from that point, theatre producers gradually realised that she was fitted for finer things than the monotony and clockwork of the chorus. What this patronising report ignored, of course, was that from August 1919 until May 1922, Eve had been rising through the stage ranks of her own accord, impressing producers, critics and audiences with not just her looks, but her dramatic, comedic singing and dancing ability. If anything, the competition had set her back in terms of her reputation as a performer because all audiences and critics saw was her appearance. Now, Mother Goose gave her a chance to change that. The Mother Goose pantomime was part of a massive show that included European acrobats and tightrope walkers, a troupe of performing monkeys from America, a spectacular electrical installation that included dancing cats, and Australia's Prime Ministers of Mirth, Stiffy and Moe, who'd be contributing a comic sailor routine. Mother Goose premiered on the 23rd of December, 1922. The Daily Telegraph said it was a gorgeous show. Eve Grey, the paper said, looked the part, though she began nervously, her entrance not helped by comedian Moe, who had a case of sticky feet and didn't get off the stage when he was supposed to. Of her performance, the Daily Telegraph said, quote, Miss Gray's voice is tuneful, but rather weak for the Hippodrome. Allowing all this, she is a petite and attractive principal girl. The Sunday Times gave her the thumbs up for having a charming presence. Eve's fetching photo, draped in flapper fashions, including a floppy hat, made all the pictorial pages at this time. 
And indeed, by the new year, Eve was something of a trendsetter, at least according to a piece about Sydney society in Grafton's Daily Examiner. Quote, Eve Grey has set the fashion in hats. An Eve Grey hat is one with a turned-up brim in front, smothered in flowers. One year earlier, Eve had been one minor name amid a roll call of celebrity women who used coconut oil. Now, her photo was used in a cosmetics advertisement. The copy read, Australia's most beautiful girl, a dainty advocate of mercalised wax for the skin. Just a side note, mercalised wax, used as a dermabrasion agent that also lightened the skin, actually contained mercury and would decades later be banned for the health dangers it posed. But back in the 1920s and 1930s, all kinds of famous women, unaware of the risks, advertised it to mere mortals as one of their beauty secrets. Mother Goose was a smash hit. The show was seen by 29,000 people in its first six days. When a writer for Referee newspaper went, every seat was filled and people were sitting four abreast on the steps of the dress circle. This reviewer thought that Eve was an excellent foil for Amy Rochelle. Towards the end of the run, the Daily Telegraph said that, quote, Eve Grey had made a delightful impression and no doubt she will do big things on stage in the future. By the time Mother Goose rapped in Sydney on the 24th of February 1923, Eve had played 99 shows to over 200,000 people, more than any other pantomime in Australian history. But she wasn't done yet. There was a Newcastle tour to get her well over the 100 show mark. But another theatrical bigwig, Hugh Ward, who was up there with JCW and Benjamin Fuller in terms of clout, reckoned that Eve had been a knockout but deserve better. He said, quote, She was just playing around till her big moment comes. As a matter of fact, Hugh Ward had her big moment for her when he announced her casting as the heroine in the Melbourne production of Bulldog Drummond. The 1920 novel Bulldog Drummond was the first in a series by H.C. McNeil, pen name Sapper, which featured the titular adventurer. It had been adapted for the stage to huge acclaim in London and New York, and now it was set for Melbourne. Bulldog Drummond was to start at the Palace Theatre on Easter Saturday. Eve would play heroine Phyllis Benton, and the son in Sydney called this the chance of her life. As a measure of the cultural cringe then in effect, Eve was the only Australian main cast member, with all the others imported from England. So, how were her reviews this time? Well, Eve was so anxious to read them, she held a copy of the Herald while cooking her bacon on the Sunday morning after opening night and was so engrossed, she nearly burnt her breakfast. At least, that was what the Herald claimed in its caption of this unlikely image. Without the blurb, the picture just showed Eve holding a newspaper by a stove, looking awkwardly at the photographer who'd suggested this nonsense. Thing was though, most critics loved Bulldog Drummond's thrills, characters and performances. The Age said Eve Grey had a future as an actress. Quote, her speaking voice is pleasant and well-trained, and her histrionic abilities are adequate to the part she plays. The Argus said, Eve Grey gave a very promising performance, possessing as she does not only unusual beauty, but a clear voice and a pleasant accent, Miss Grey should develop into an actress of real distinction. The Sporting Globe offered that she showed, quote, she is something more than a promoted chorus girl, Australia is going to be proud of her. Of course, it wasn't all sweetness and light, but even critics who didn't like Eve's performance admitted that she did show promise. The Weekly Times wrote, quote, The villains are frequently stagey, and the heroine, played by Miss Eve Grey, is insipid. Doubtless Miss Grey will do much better when she has had more experience in spoken drama. At present, her voice can scarcely be heard in some parts of the theatre. Table Talk magazine wasn't impressed, saying Eve was, quote, seriously overweighted and made her character a colourless individual. But even this reviewer saw something, quote, Miss Grey has much to learn in stage deportment and makeup, for the latter was of the waxen doll character and wiped out every trace of facial expression, yet she is not lacking promise. Her voice is pleasing and she speaks her lines with good inflection. But the Herald's review on its women's page also gave an indication of what many in the audience were really interested in when Eve was on stage. Quote, The women in the audience sat up and took notice of the cut of her skirt. It was their old friend, the Tube, back again. 
It seemed that to many, Eve was little more than a pretty clothes horse. A week into Bulldog Drummond's run, the Herald ran an interview with Eve that today would result in a million memes that might ruin a young actress's career. The headline read, Face Not Her Fortune, Eve Grey's Handicap. The article began, quote, Eve Grey is perhaps the only woman in the world who declares that beauty has been a handicap to her. Eve had told a Herald reporter, quote, There are a lot of people who always feel that if a girl has fluffy hair and a baby face, she has no brains. She continued, I have to work twice as hard to prove that I have something besides a face, and that is why I am glad to have been given this opportunity. Eve told the paper that, contrary to what some people might think, she didn't actually court publicity. What she wanted to do was focus on her stage work, rather than pass herself off as some kind of beauty. Quote, I do not expect to be anything wonderful, but hope to be told that I do more than remind people of a chocolate box. Yet Eve's looks were still the focus, and fan mail continued to pour in. Requests for signed photos, requests for money, requests for marriage. One chap wrote to request bail, because he was on remand. Quote, I saw you in Bulldog Drummond the other night and felt at once that the sweet sympathy which illuminated your lovely face was a reflex of your tender nature, hence my appeal to you in my distress. Following Bulldog Drummond, Eve and Hugh Ward's company appeared in another play called The Faithful Heart. This role called for a damsel with dark hair, so Eve had to wear a wig to mask her golden curls. She got good reviews. Even Table Talk gave her a backhand compliment, saying she had, quote, moments when she touched real feeling and seemed human. The Herald was far kinder, and on the 2nd of June, it said that she put flight to those critics who thought she had been selected by Mr. Hugh J. Ward for his company because she won the New South Wales beauty competition. The paper said The Faithful Heart was, quote, the finest play we have seen in many a year. Eve's role as a daughter reunited with her father was an emotionally charged one. Her entrance each night caused the audience to stir. Not because of the depth of her performance, but because even a year afterwards, they still thought of her first and foremost as the beauty competition winner. Keith Murdoch asked Eve to write an article about her claim that her beauty had been a handicap. Eve did, and she crafted an eloquently put argument that resonates today in a world where we're aware of what sudden celebrity can do to a person's privacy. The piece, which ran in the Herald on Saturday the 30th of June 1923, was given the unfortunate headline, Curse My Fatal Beauty. This, a prefatory note said, was a familiar line from melodrama, but it made it seem like Eve had actually uttered it when she hadn't. In any event, the article said that Eve, quote, has discovered that fame won by beauty has its many and manifold disadvantages. The paper said it hoped female readers would sympathise, quote, although many might be willing to put up with her trials and tribulations for the sake of possessing so much loveliness. With its headline and such comments, the paper appeared to be undermining her before she'd even begun. Eve wrote that she'd been taken aback when the Herald asked her to write about the disadvantages of being beautiful. That was because just admitting you were good-looking simply wasn't done. And that, Eve wrote, was curious because it was something over which a woman had no real control. A girl who'd been blessed with brains, for instance, wasn't accused of being an egomaniac if she acknowledged that she was smart. Even so, Eve wrote, quote, I lack the courage to write boldly of the disadvantage of beauty. She wasn't going to claim beauty for herself, but what Eve would allow was that several artists, quote, usually considered competent, had given her that beauty prize. Since then, quote, certain discouraging things have happened to me which have often made me wish that I had never been entered for that competition. Even as Eve wrote these words, she could hear howls from her readers. Quote, there are thousands of girls who will sniff with loud disbelief at that statement. Look at what it brought her, they all exclaim. Where would she be now if those fools of judges hadn't been such fools? Eve continued, I can't help their conviction that all the wonderful publicity attaching to the winner of a beauty competition is beer and skittles. I only know that I have often been reduced to tears at some more than ordinarily humiliating experiences arising out of that fact 
that after Longstaff and Lambert had made me a beauty, I was handed over to the public, no longer belonging to myself, but to the whole newspaper reading public. To me, it's telling that Eve referred to these artists only by their surnames. Longstaff and Lambert. No first name, no honorific. It was rare then to find such a construction in a newspaper, and it spoke perhaps of her disdain for them. Eve explained how Ashby's had entered her into the competition. Quote, I laughed and never dreamed of the possibility of what was to come. The next time I heard was an invitation to go to Sydney to meet the artist judging. That was a hectic time. Of course, I was excited. I reached Sydney on a Sunday and on Monday met the judges. Heavens, that's where the disadvantages began. Her experience sounds quite dismal. Quote, the four men turned me this way and that way. They sat me under a strong light, a woman's worst enemy. Two of the wretches sketched me as I sat, while the others pulled me to pieces, discussing me as if I were prize stock, and not so darned prize at that. No wonder I asked sarcastically after a little while of this, would you like to see my teeth, gentlemen, and verify my age? Eve said they sent her on her way without giving her any hint of the result of their extended examination. Quote, it was then my long martyrdom to photographers began. Four solid hours on that first Monday was my punishment. Here, again, I hear in advance the sniffing of my sisters. Let me assure them that however enamoured of publicity they may be at the outset, photographers, and may I add, newspaper men, soon take away all desire for the limelight. Then she said, a very cheeky young reporter from the Herald had come to ambush her with the news that she'd won the competition. Then had come the hubbub over Murdoch's paper spoiling the result for the evening news, which had run the competition. Quote, Anyway, it was then I found myself caught up in a whirl of publicity that was exciting at first and then became a nightmare. Eve said that some people had been kind and nice, but other colleagues and acquaintances had demonstrated, quote, the spite and the jealousy which even this poor sort of success causes. And out in the world, strangers were often just as bad. Quote, Can anyone deny that it is a positive disadvantage to be mobbed in the street whenever I go out? To be pointed at in trams, trains and shops? To have people stop dead in front of me and stare rudely? Or return on their tracks and peer into my very face? To have perfect strangers accost me with impudent inquiries as to whether I was really Eve Grey? Eve gave an example of a conversation on a tram held as she was sitting within earshot in which someone had loudly said that JCW had rigged the beauty competition. Eve quoted another such hurtful chat held between two tram travellers in her presence. There she is. That's Eve Grey. What do you think of her? That her? Why, she's not pretty. They must have been a pretty scratch lot if they picked her. With this happening day in and day out, Eve said she'd retreated wherever possible. Quote, I got so nervous of all this public attention that at last I would go out no oftener than was actually necessary. I would never have believed it possible that the judgment of four men on a girl's face would have brought about this avalanche of curiosity. Eve also recognised that she was trapped in a paradox. All of this attention on her actually had little to do with her or her beauty. Quote, it was my first experience of the enormous power of the press. It will please the sniffers to know that not for one moment did I get the notion that my beauty was stopping the traffic. Sydney had been fairly familiar with it before and had it kept its head. Yet now the police had to move the crowds on who were struggling to catch a glimpse of the photograph of a girl that a paper had made famous. She continued, Luckily, I was always savvy enough to know how little my own personality counted in the clamour that arose. Turning up to the Haymarket Theatre that Monday in June 1922 for the newsreel premiere had been terrifying. Quote, When I arrived, a mob of thousands were swaying about in front of the doors and rushed me. I had to be carried on a man's shoulders through the mass of people. I was already beginning to see the other side of the glittering metal. Eve informed readers that she'd been on the stage for years before winning that competition. Quote, I was very ambitious and somehow I always felt that there was something I could do if I worked hard. I had already climbed out of the ruck in my company when this happened. Everyone was very nice to me, but now a magical change came about, not among my real friends, but in the circle in which I lived. 
People would eye me with disdain. I could feel their contempt withering me up that I should have dared to put over this big bluff about my looks. Eve continued, Everywhere I go, I have the uneasy feeling that I can't be natural. I'm not a person. I'm Eve Grey, public property, to be whispered about or cooed over. Now, the plain truth is, though I don't expect to be believed in this, I love my work on the stage, and I resent this constant talk and discussion of beauty because it hurts my real profession. Eve gave the example of her coming on stage each night in the faithful heart. Quote, It is a simple entrance, and if I succeed in it, the emotion that ought to arise in the audience is the pathos of this entry into a man's life of a daughter of whose existence he is unaware. I have to feel that pathos. My own heart is to be full of emotion at the meeting for which I have planned. And yet, what actually happens? Half the audience begin to move and whisper in the most damnable way. There, that's her. She's wearing a black wig. Yes, I knew you'd be disappointed. Fancy giving a prize to her. Eve wrote, Can't you see the unfairness of having to get the emotion through that dead wall? But she realized that most people wouldn't believe a word of what she'd written. Quote, of course people will say, all very well to talk like that. Her face put her on the stage. Hugh Ward chose her for her looks. She's got no brains. Her face shows that. Eve continued, Well, they have a right to that poor opinion both of me and of Mr. Ward. All I'm concerned with is emphasising the disadvantage of an actress having to contend with too wide a reputation for beauty. As for where that left Eve, she wrote that rather than heading overseas to trade on the title of Australia's Most Beautiful Girl, she'd remain to perform and to improve as an actor. Quote, I was sensible enough to know that if I couldn't make good among my own folk, I was not likely to do so elsewhere. So here I am, keen to get on, knowing that I have everything to learn and determined to learn it. A week later, Bulldog Drummond played in Sydney, opening for a vast audience at the Grand Opera House. This was Eve's debut in the legitimate theatre in her hometown. The Daily Telegraph thought that she made, quote, an excellent debut as the charming heroine. The Sydney Morning Herald said her performance showed natural acting of merit, and Smith's Weekly thought she'd improved, quote, she really is a starter in the dramatic stakes. Yet the old reference was never far away. The Sunday Times write-up said, quote, there was Eve Grey, famous beauty prize winner, developed into an actress of admirable capability. At the end of the month, the company put on the faithful heart and received rave reviews for this more serious drama. Smith Weekly might have hit the nail on the head, though, in its review of her performance when it said, Eve Grey, gradually living down her reputation as winner of a beauty competition, reaches a fine height. But it wasn't easy to reach those fine heights and live down that reputation when the press repeated the old story at every opportunity. On the 11th of August, the Daily Telegraph had reprinted the Melbourne Herald's old article headlined, Face Not Her Fortune, Eve Gray's Handicap. Eve didn't have any control over that, any more than she had control over her photos appearing in a new magazine called Stage Beauties or in those cosmetics advertisements that still traded on her as Australia's most beautiful girl. Back at the end of 1922, when Mother Goose had gone from Sydney to Newcastle, Eve had been a star attraction of the show. And Newcastle was looking forward to seeing her again in Bulldog Drummond. But in late September, Eve dropped out of Hugh Ward's company. Everyone wanted to know why and what she was going to do next but no answers were forthcoming. There were rumours in the newspapers. Eve might be going to America to try her luck in pictures, or she might be going to London to get into stage comedy. Another story had it that she was taking a leading role in a play that was going to tour Australia's country towns. One writer reckoned she was a good bet for another seasonal pantomime. Instead, a few days before Christmas 1923, when Ambassador's Restaurant and Nightclub opened in Sydney, Eve attended as a guest of one of her earliest boosters, Hugh D. McIntosh, a.k.a. Huge Deal. As far as the newspapers record, this was her last public appearance, at least until the 16th of February 1924, when she was snapped saying goodbye to Australia from the deck of the steamer Esperance Bay. Eve, her mother and sister Madge were bound for London. Her father would follow later. The Sunday Times said of Eve, quote, 
It is her intention to pursue a stage career. Australians will wish her well. So why did Eve Grey opt out of Australia? We don't know. She would soon claim she'd just gone on holiday, but I think the Sunday Times had it right. She'd gone to London to find work. I'd say there's a good chance she was sick of the focus on her face to the exclusion of almost everything else. While the newspapers had eased up to an extent, it's a good bet that the public had not. For whatever reason, they felt that they owned her. But Eve may also have left because she'd proved herself in Sydney and Melbourne in drama, comedy, thriller, musical and pantomime. Perhaps it was time to be a small fish in a bigger pond, where she could learn from the sort of English stage actors Australian producers were so fond of importing. And given Eve had spent the first half of her life in England, it seems likely that curiosity about her homeland was also a factor in going back. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Eve arrived in London on the 29th of March, 1924. By the time she got there, her photos had already made the papers and been on display including a stunning ethereal portrait by Sydney photographer Monty Luke. So local snappers were ready with their cameras to get their own pictures of Eve. Her arrival in London made news in 11 daily papers. One widely circulated photograph had her in a charmingly casual pose strumming a ukulele by her hotel window. Most reports mentioned the beauty competition, but in an interview Eve quite smartly did not. Instead, she ingratiated herself by saying that London girls were absolutely lovely. The city, too, was marvellous. Quote, It is more wonderful than I imagined, and I have imagined it long and often. I really came over for a holiday, but now I want to stay always. Eve had only been in London for three days when she was interviewed by Daly's Theatre Company. They needed to replace the actor playing the maid, Mariette second female lead to Madame Pompadour in the lavish London production of the same name set in Versailles during the reign of Louis XV. Eve Grey got the role. News of her English debut was accompanied by numerous stunning full-page photographs, some of them colour-tinted, that appeared in The Tatler, The Sketch and other popular publications. The little articles that went with these pictures made only passing reference to the beauty competition, and some didn't mention it at all. Instead, they presented Eve as an accomplished and exciting Australian actress, though some did note she'd been born in England. Eve had successfully pressed the reset button on how she was perceived. Her reviews for Madame Pompadour were good, and Australian correspondents reporting for papers back home said her acting had improved yet again. Madame Pompadour ran until the end of January 1925. After that, she played supporting roles in numerous productions. Then, at the end of July 1926, Eve had her first leading role in None But The Brave at the Garrick Theatre. The show and Eve were a hit. A few months later, in winter, Eve made the transition to film with that striking bit part for Alfred Hitchcock in The Lodger. But Eve Grey wouldn't be in small movie roles for very long. After her debut in The Lodger, Eve Grey was soon a major British movie star. Some films were shot in England, others in Europe, with language no barrier in these last days of the silent pictures. Eve took the female lead in Poppies of Flanders, an acclaimed war drama that was released in October 1927. Then there was a film on screens around the same time called The Silver Lining, closely followed by another movie called One of the Best. In 1928 came Villa Falconeri, which was shot in Rome. Then came the lavish melodrama Moulin Rouge, one of the most opulent films of the British silent era. Eve was the second billed female role, her character becoming embroiled in a strange love triangle that involves her fiancé and her own mother. The movie was met with some controversy for a scene in which Eve's character got smashed on booze. 
Eve also saw real smash-up action in the British racing car drama Smashing Through, which involved crazy stunts and her zipping around a track at 100 miles an hour. But that was nothing compared to her experiences filming Adventures Incorporated. This film, shot in 1928 in Germany, was the very first movie adaptation of an Agatha Christie novel. Based on The Secret Adversary, Adventures Incorporated had Eve as Tuppence, a plucky, funny, daredevil girl who teams up with a fella to get into adventures, the first of which is finding a missing secret agent. So before the movie's various Mrs. Marple and Messieurs Poirot, Eve Grey was the first ever Agatha Christie hero. Some of the stunts in Adventures Incorporated are toe curling and they were achieved under very dangerous circumstances. As Eve told Sydney's The Sun in December 1928, quote, German film producers will stop at nothing to get realism, stark, naked realism. The article continued, Often, she said, the craze for realism resulted in serious injury to the players, but the cameras never stopped. Eve told The Sun she'd been working 17 hours a day for two weeks straight and eventually had collapsed from exhaustion. One fight that had been staged on a tall platform had seen two actors fall 40 feet and sustain serious injuries. The Sun reported, She was terrified, but the producers kept on the camera to enable the effects to be shot. When the producers demanded that Eve swim across an icy river, this young actor, who'd loved nothing more than surf bathing at Coogee, claimed she couldn't swim a stroke. So the producers gave a local Fraulein a couple of marks and had her do it instead. Eve had made films all over the continent by now. Some of Moulin Rouge had been filmed in Paris, and she'd also made a movie called Sweet Pepper that had filmed in Budapest and Vienna. But it was filming Adventures Incorporated in Berlin that was absolutely eye-popping for Eve. She told The Sun that she'd been utterly astounded by what she called the cults of the city, and they were so extreme to make Paris look, quote, puritanical. What Eve was referring to was Berlin during its cabaret period, in which sex, drugs, prostitution, and anything else went and was out in the open. Around October 1929, when Wall Street crashed, it was announced that Eve Grey was to try to make the transition to the newfangled all-talking pictures. The first such movie was called The Loves of Robert Burns, released in March of 1930, and though it wasn't a success, Eve, who early in her career had been criticised for her voice, did just fine in a role that asked her to speak. During this period, Eve also had the lead role in Sleeping Beauty at the Theatre Royal in London's Jury Lane, which, after many years' absence, was returning pantomime to the place where it had begun. This production was hailed as a triumph, not least for its remarkable staging and costumes, and it ran from Christmas Eve until the start of March 1930. But in the decade ahead, Eve would do most of her work in front of the cameras. She'd have many more starring and supporting roles. Some were quality British talkies. Others were what were called quota quickies, and these were made by American studios in England to fulfil their obligations to the British government and these movies were usually released internationally as B-pictures. In 1933-34, for instance, Eve appeared in at least nine movies. Then, at the start of 1935, her most recent production hit screens. Made by Warner Brothers, it was a comedy thriller called Murder at Monte Carlo, and it was about a male reporter and his girlfriend journalist competing to solve a big mystery and get the scoop. The movie didn't get great reviews. It was just another B-picture. Eve played the lady reporter. Her leading man was also Australian, nearly 10 years her junior, a newcomer to the movies, having made just one creaky adventure flick back home before coming to England. When they saw him on screen in Murder at Monte Carlo, the bigwigs at Warner Brothers in America decided he was going to be a star and brought him to Hollywood. So it was that, before Olivia de Havilland, Eve Grey was the first leading lady to share the screen with Errol Flynn. Sadly, Murder at Monte Carlo is a lost film. Around the time Eve did Murder at Monte Carlo, she also starred in The Quitters, a gangster play that saw her opposite American movie actor Charles Farrell. He too was to have an Australian link. 
The next year, he'd go to Sydney and fall in love with actress and model Margaret Viner while starring with her and young Mary Maguire in the movie The Flying Doctor. While Murder at Monte Carlo is lost, we can watch Eve's next film called Death on the Set. This was another quota quickie made in 1935, and it's about identical twins, both of whom are crooks, though one has a legit career as a movie director. To get out of a jam, they swap lives. Death on the Set is a B-grader that benefits from its bizarre premise, and Eve really pops as the gangster's brassy broad, and the film suffers when she's killed off. Just a note on availability, The Lodger is available to watch free on YouTube, Moulin Rouge can be seen at archive.org, and you can rent Death on the Set for about $4 via YouTube. You can also see Eve for free at YouTube in the 1935 Dickens adaptation Scrooge. In the second half of the 1930s, Eve played smaller movie roles. All up, she made close to four dozen films between 1926 and 1938. In a 1939 England and Wales register found at Ancestry.com.au, Eve is recorded as living with her mother and father and sister at 39 Springfield Road, Marlebone, in London's West End. Google Earth shows that this building is an attractive double-fronted two-storey brick terrace. Eve's profession in this record is listed as film actress, while her dad and Margaret are listed as milk bar manager and milk bar supervisor, respectively. This reflects another quirky bit of Australian history. Eve's original theatrical patron, the irrepressible Huge Deal, had moved to England and in August 1935 he started the black and white milk bar chain. By December 1937 they were well established, as Smith Weekly said having quote, convinced the English in general and the hard-boiled gentry of Fleet Street that milk can be consumed without rum or coffee. The article said that having succeeded in this, Huge Deal had been looking to establish milk bars in Paris, and as his evangelist, he was sending two Sydney barmaids and Eve Gray's sister, Madge. But alas, Huge Deal expanded too far, too fast with his milk bar enterprise, and it went into liquidation in November of 1938. Reports at this time said that the milk bars were going to be sold off that Eve's dad and sister still listed their milk bar enterprises as their livelihoods on the 1939 register suggests that they'd taken theirs over, or at least ran it for a new owner. This 1939 register was taken on the 29th of September, which was about four weeks after Germany and England were again at war. On it, we see that Eve and Madge were listed as voluntary air raid wardens. At this time, the conflict was known as the phony war because things were yet to really heat up. Life was continuing pretty much as normal for most Londoners. What we also see on this register was that there was a fifth person listed as being at the Garrett House on the 29th of September. This was 19-year-old Michael Joseph Anderson, and his profession was listed as assistant film director. Why was he there? Maybe he was just visiting, Maybe he was boarding with them. Michael had likely met Eve through his parents, who were both stage actors. He'd taken after them as a performer, and only recently had he gone behind the camera. Now, for a little flash forward. In 1950, Michael Anderson made his directorial debut with a film called Waterfront, which co-starred a young Richard Burton. Five years later, Michael Anderson made the classic The Dam Busters, and quickly followed that up with the first adaptation of George Orwell's 1984, and then he made the beloved Best Picture winner Around the World in 80 Days. Michael Anderson would also make Logan's Run, among many other pictures and TV series, and he only passed away four years ago at the age of 98. So, Michael Anderson in 1939 had a big life ahead of him. But the war with Germany was about to heat up, and that was going to disrupt his career just as it would Eve's. While Michael Anderson joined the Royal Signal Corps, Eve was in the first troupe of Australian performers to entertain troops in London later in 1939. Soon after, having completed her run in the saucy stage comedy Faithfully Yours, Eve made a life-changing decision, though it wasn't reported at the time. A February 1947 article in the Eastbourne Herald tells us that Eve, quote, abandoned her stage and film careers at the outbreak to train for a highly technical post 
under the air ministry. What exactly did Eve do? I haven't been able to find out. But given the air ministry's role in the next five years, from the Battle of Britain to the heavy bombing of Germany, this part of her life presents fascinating possibilities. According to that Eastbourne Herald article, when the war ended, Eve immediately applied for release from the air ministry so she could go and entertain the troops. She toured a production of Canaries Sometimes Sing through Egypt, Palestine and other places in the Middle East. This was good and valuable work. But the hiatus of the war was tough on actresses of a certain age. As we heard in Australia's first supermodel, Margaret Viner's career suffered in this way. Eves did too. When she appeared on the silver screen after the war, it was only when a few of her old films were dusted off and re-released as supporting features. Eve still did appear on stage. The references to her air ministry and North African work found in early 1947 articles about her role in a show called Why Not Tonight. As late as August 1950, Eve was still treading the boards. The East Kent Times and Mail said that in a thriller called Ladies in Retirement, she was in fine form, quote, as the good-hearted erstwhile Victorian chorus girl living in retirement on a lover's pension. Other reviews also offered praise for her performance, one saying it was an impressive study and another that she gave the character the correct treatment. Eve was only to make one more movie, taking a leading role in 1951's comedy short One Good Turn. After that, Eve played a retired lady in real life. Cut to 1994. That was when an Australian art collector named Nicholas van der Warden, who'd always wanted to own a painting by Sir John Longstaff, saw that one was up for private sale through an auction house. Mr. van der Warden said that the auctioneer described it as, quote, a lovely portrait painted by Longstaff, which hasn't been seen for decades. Mr. van der Warden described the moment he first clapped eyes on Eve Grey, quote, then out came the Longstaff an enchanting face of a young woman wearing a ridiculous fruit salad hat peered out at me. I was instantly smitten. I couldn't take my eyes off the portrait of this young woman. I couldn't leave without her. Half an hour later, the painting wrapped in plain brown wrapper, I left the auctioneer's office bewildered. The late Mr. Van der Warden did his best from that point on to find out more about the woman in the picture. This included corresponding with John Longstaff's biographers, who were then just about to release their study of the man. And it's thanks to Mr. Van der Warden's work that I've learned a little more about Eve's later life. In 1999, Mr. Van der Warden was corresponding with people who knew Eve in later life, and the Mere Historical Society in Wiltshire were kind enough to share these letters with me. Big thanks to Derek Fisher and colleagues for their assistance. After the war, Eve, who, like Sister Madge, had never married, looked after their aging parents. Their mother, Fanny, died in 1948. In 1956, the sisters moved into a modest brick terrace in Mere, Wiltshire. Photos of it looked nice enough, but it was a far cry from the place they'd enjoyed in the West End before the war. Even Madge's father, George, lived until he was 87, passing away in 1962. Madge apparently ran a business, and Eve helped her out with market research. When Madge developed Alzheimer's, Eve nursed her sister. Madge died in 1976. After that, Eve lived alone in the house in Mere with her dog, which was called Jenny. But Eve did have a good neighbour who looked out for her, and this assistance is mentioned in letters that she wrote to her family back in Australia, which were seen by Nick van der Warden. So while Eve had been forgotten by the wider world, it doesn't appear that she was completely alone. Eve Grey, a.k.a. Fanny Evelyn Garrett, once heralded as Australia's most beautiful girl before she became a real star of stage and screen, died on the 23rd of May 1983. She was 82. Her passing, as much as I've been able to ascertain, went unreported in the newspapers. In fact, the only story I found about Eve in Australia after around 1940 appeared in The Age in 1994. It came when that biography of Longstaff was about to be published and Nick van der Warden had bought the painting and was beginning his quest to find out more about Eve. That was easier said than done in the days before IMDb, Trove, Ancestry and all the other marvels of our internet age. 
Mr. Van der Warden, the aide said, had received a bit of help from the biographers. Quote, They knew nothing of Eve Grey, either as a portrait or a person, but they managed to find clues, including the fact that she had probably been an actor. The article, which admittedly was focused on the Longstaff biography, said Eve's story had not made it into the book, and it offered, quote, This doesn't matter. Of course, I disagree with that. I'm glad to have been able to find out so much about Eve Grey. I believe her contribution to cinema, though minor, deserves to be remembered, as does her pluck and honesty in rising above the way she was seen in the Australian newspapers to have a successful stage career here and then in England. One last note. While researching this episode, I used Ancestry to look for Eve Grey's living relatives. One thing led to another, and then to an obituary from the Sydney Morning Herald in the 1970s. And from that, I got a lead that took me to Sharni Ferguson, and to her dad, Alan Garrett, who's the grandson of Thomas Garrett, brother of Eve's father, and thus her grandnephew. I made contact, and we arranged a phone call. I hoped that Sharni and Alan, who were both on the line, were about to fill in some blanks. A photo album or a stash of letters would have been great but it actually worked the other way. They didn't know all about Eve. In fact, they actually knew very little of her life and times. So it became my privilege and pleasure to be able to tell them about their remarkable ancestor and to share all the files I'd accumulated. Making this podcast has resulted in a lot of special moments, but that really was one of the best. If any of Eve Gray's relatives should hear this and want to make contact, hit me up at the Facebook page Forgotten Oz Podcast, and I'll pass your details on to Shani and to Alan. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. Big thanks to all Patreon supporters, because your contributions allowed me to buy several second-hand books that I used as reference for this episode. They included Hitchcock Truffaut, in which the French filmmaker interviewed the British master about the making of his movies. There was also Frank Van Stratton's Huge Deal, The Fortunes and Follies of Hugh D. McIntosh. Contributions also helped me secure a copy of Adventures Incorporated and for the YouTube purchase of Death on the Set. So, thanks to all supporters. Becoming a supporter is cheaper than a cup of coffee a month and you can chip in via patreon.com forward slash Forgotten Australia and this link's in your show notes. Or you can simply support Forgotten Australia by leaving a rating or review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your downloads. The Nick Vanderwarden quote about discovering the portrait of Eve Grey was found at the website of Bonhams, the Sydney auction house, which recently sold the painting for more than $8,000. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.